Welcome to Valley Community Church. Our Sunday sermons are available online to help you grow in your Christian faith. Our messages are practical and applicable truths from the Bible for today's life challenges. And now, Senior Pastor David Schwartz. Well, we're in a series again, uh, Why We Worship, Part 3. And uh, I do want to wish all of our dads Happy Father's Day. And uh, especially as we think of maybe those of us who've had our daddies pass on and go on to be with the Lord, we think of special thoughts about them today as well, don't we? Well, we're in part three, and subtitled this, God Finds His Man. And again, I just want to remind you that we're kind of on a, a bit of a, uh, a fast train as we kind of plow through the Old Testament, and we're really moving toward kind of a climax in our series. And uh, we're, we're trying to put this together for you in such a way as to kind of just bring it all together. We can get tied up in the intricacies of the Old Testament and what really kind of laid the foundation for what we would consider biblical worship. But I'm really giving you the highlights. I want, and if you're interested, you can always dig in, and hopefully that will stir uh, maybe a deeper desire for Bible study on your part. But today I want to talk about God finding his man. So after the introduction of the tent of meeting, we talked about that last week and why the presence of God was being in, introduced to them in, in a symbolic way. This concept of worship becomes a way of life for the Israelites for several generations. God wants to dwell with his people and desires a theocracy. And that's a government that is solely based on God's people trusting in him, solely in him, and his appointed priests, prophets, and judges. And this works for uh, uh, quite a bit of time, many, many generations, where God raises up judges to help the people move forward and to continue to understand the ways of God. How, however, over time, the people lose the heart of worship. As, it, as we find over and over again, and even in our own lives, we see this tendency to experience kind of this uh, high and then these valleys. And the book of Judges is almost clearly an example of that, where we see these cycles. Whenever the people worshiped God, things went well. Whenever they forgot about God, things didn't go so well. And the enemies would come in and steal from them, rob from them, and they would experience uh, emotional decline and struggle until God rose up another uh, judge to help them, lead them out of this bondage and this struggle. And then once again, they would return to their God. And so this is a lesson for us. Of course, in a, in a, in a historical view, if you take it down in a, micro, you know, in a microcosm, we'd see whenever we're seeking God, things go well. God rebukes our enemies. God surrounds us with favor as a shield. So we begin, they, they after a while, begin to uh, look to the surrounding nations, many of whom were the nations that they failed to conquer as God had instructed them to do so. And as an example there, where the things in our lives that we don't fully walk in truth can come back and begin to rob the joy of the Lord from us. Say, we could be experiencing great victory in one area, but that one area that we failed to bring to the Lord, to, to walk in the grace of God, it can come back and steal our joy. And uh, so I write here, the, 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 the chickens of disobedience come back to roost in this failure to maintain their first love. They desire to become like the world, and God grants their wish with a rebuke and a warning. They said, we want a king like the other nations. After that time, they've been operating, as I said, as a theocracy. They've been worshiping God and trusting in him alone. With judges, who were essentially just prophetic to help them continue to bring them back to the heart of God. 
Now they're saying, no, 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 we, we're, we're done with that. We want a king like the rest of the nations. We want to become secular. We want to, we want to become you know, a nation without, uh, essentially, with, with a God who's placed lower than a king in, in many uh, senses. So again, they wanted a king. So they chose, and God chose, Saul. And his choice turned into a very painful lesson after they were warned that a king would control them to take their sons to war and take their money for his own selfish purposes. So God warned them. He said, look, if you do this, you will feel the sting and the pain of this. And they did not. They said, we don't care. We want a king. And so God gave them a king. He was a strapping, tall, handsome, powerful man named Saul. And everybody said, surely this is the kind of king that we want leading over us. But it wasn't very long before Saul rejected God. It became very clear that he did not fear God whatsoever. And thus began a 40 years of reign under this man where the, the nation of Israel and God's people suffered greatly. So God, again, is able to use the failings of man to his advantage. They wanted a king, which God fully intended to give them. We find that out later. God said, look, I want to give you a king, but I don't want him to be my king. I want him to be the man that I have chosen. And of course, we know that's going to be Jesus when that, that time came. But as a result of God rejecting uh, Saul, God chooses another man, a man that none of us would have chosen. God finds a man out in the wilderness who's watching over sheep. And as God, his, his heart is searching for a man, searching for one who will be someone who can represent God's people to seek him. What he finds is not a man in battle, not a man who is you know, politically active, not a man who is touting his own strength. No, he finds a man who is worshiping God out in the wilderness, playing on his lyre, writing songs, worshiping God, connecting with God on a plane where when a lion and a bear come to attack and to kill the sheep, this young man named David rises up and says, God, you can give me the strength to help me protect the sheep that you've given me. We find even then almost supernatural-like ability for David to connect with the power of God. And it all comes through this door of what attracts God to David, and that is he is a worshiper. God is out there, again, looking for a man, and what he hears is a song on a lyre saying, Lord, my Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And God says, that's the man I'm looking for. And so, at a very young age, David is anointed to be king. And without going into all the detail on that, David goes through a long period of time, we figure about 20 years, minimal, where God is making him into the kind of man that God wants him to be. And it's a, tough, if it, it's a tough journey, there is no doubt. In Acts chapter 13, verse 22, we find out that it says, after removing Saul, God made David their king, and God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. This was the qualification. Isn't that interesting? When we think of kingship, when we think of leadership, when we think of all the most important things in our lives, we immediately run to progeny. We run to a privilege. We run to finances and abilities and, and power. Where God says, no, all I'm looking for is a man after my own heart. A man or a woman who is seeking the heart of God to say, look, I, I push past all of the things of man. I push, I push past all of the things that would, uh, in my mind, or from a worldly point of view, 
be the kind of person, person we would choose. Saul was an example of that. But now David, we find, is a man after God's own heart. And as a result, God anoints him. God sets him up. And so here's quick points here regarding David. God anoints David because of his heart to worship. God anoints David because of his heart of faith. So he's worshiping, but he's also a, a, a young man who has a very simplistic faith. What God said, David just simply believed. There was no questioning. There was no philosophical trying to, to turn what is God doing, what is God up to. There was none of that. There was David just said, and, and it's clearly was seen on the field of battle when David shows up and all the army is sitting there all facing to the Philistines and the Israelites are stuck. And David, just this young man, probably 15, 16 years old, walks into the battlefield and he goes, hey man, what's going on? And he's just bringing lunch for his brother. And he goes, what's going on out there? He says, man, we're all, we're just... You know, we've been sitting here for days and days and days, and there's this nine-foot giant over there. His name is Goliath, and he's taunting the, the armies of God. And he said, look, send your warrior out. If he defeats me, then you guys take, you know, you know take the whole thing, you, you know, one, one for all. And uh, so they're all just stuck because there's not a man in, in Israel, the Israel army that would be willing to fight him. But David walks up, just a boy, and says, I'll take him. And it wasn't out of pride, it wasn't out of arrogance, it wasn't out of skill, it wasn't on any of that. He was just going, what, is he blaspheming God? Well, God can stick up for himself. All he needs is a man who says, on behalf of the living God, you're going down. And that's exactly what David did. He was a man of faith, tested at a very early age. So God says, oh, that's what I want. God anoints David because his heart is courageous. He pushes past even faith. So he starts to put on the armor and he gets the five smooth, smooth stones and he says, look, I killed a bear, I killed a lion, I can take that guy. And it's an amazing story. We all love that story. It's, it just breaks my heart to think that historians don't think that that actually happened. Are you kidding? It actually happened, without, without question. It was absolutely legendary regarding David. That's why God loved him. That's why God put his trust in him. That's why God anointed him. And then after that, God makes him king. And why does he make him king? Because he values the relationship with his God. And David inquires of God throughout his life. As king, we don't find him separating. Now, David had some troubles, there's no doubt, and that's a whole study in and of itself regarding pride and sin and all of that, which, again, is another whole study. But David, you know, God never gives up on David. God continues to love David, even, even through his struggles, and what I find amazing about that is that the fact that God never pulls back from David is because David continued to seek him even in his struggles. He never pulled back from God. When he was caught in his sin, he pushed toward God and repented and, and, and said, God, forgive me, wash me. You can read it in one of his psalms. God's heart is, uh, is attracted to David because he's a man of repentance. He's a man that values the relation, his personal relationship with God. God makes him David king because he values the heart of worship. And this is where we're headed. David is, as I told you last week, he's a little bit of a rebel in a sense of how he valued worship. He knew about the tent of meeting. Everyone knew how the Levitical priesthood was supposed to approach God the way I described it last week. Okay, outer courts, holy place, holy of holies, and do it exactly as God prescribed or experienced death. 
David pushes the envelope here, and he goes, you know, God, if you don't mind, I think we need to spruce up the place a little. I think we need a worship team. I think we need musicians. And I want to appoint two guys, Heman and Asaph, and I want them to write songs like I like to write songs. And I want those songs, and I want to appoint out of the Levites, if you don't mind, Father, that they create trumpets and, and, and music, music in the kind of worship that whenever the ark is moved, not, we just don't go and follow the cloud or the fire, but that it goes forth with praise. What do you think, God? And God says, hmm, great idea. I'll anoint that. And so David begins his reign at the very beginning, and the first thing he wants to do, well, I'll get to that in a second, but so his heart, he values worship. David gets it. He understands that the, he understood that the presence of God, without the presence of God, Israel was nothing. Without the presence of God, David was nothing. David knew why he got there. David knew exactly why. After all those, the 20 years of suffering and struggling and running from Saul, he understood that the favor of God, the blessing of God, and may I say the presence of God needed to be valued above all things. So that when we come in, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll just push into where we are now, that, that when we are here today, that we understand, and, and, and I was just talking with Jamie and we were praying, it's just like, look, we value the presence of God. That's what we want here. We want to feel him. We want to touch him. We want to talk to him. Our songs are designed to, 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 to put us into a place where we can intimately cross that, that, that membrane of struggle and earthly, as I, as I prayed, to, to come and to seek the heart of God, to value his presence. David was a man. He was that man that valued the presence of God. God makes David king because he values the word of God. As we see that during his time of testing, David had several occasions where he could have struck Saul. David had a following of not just warriors, but ultimate warriors. <laughs> we would call them bad beeps. I mean, these guys were awesome. They were, now check this out, read it in yourself. They were giant killers themselves. So a giant killer attracted giant killers. And that's the way that works, by the way. So David had, a, David had an army, a very small force of Delta guys. Let's just put it that way. They were awesome. David could have taken that kingdom anytime he wanted. And on several occasions, he had Saul sitting in his hand. Literally, he could have killed him, taken over. Nobody would have even questioned it. But David feared God. And he said, nope, not before God puts me in. And I will not strike the Lord's anointed. Refused to do it. That's a man of character, isn't it? That's a man that God would trust. That's a man who says, I'm testing you, David. In over 20 years, we look at that and to say, man, why would you anoint a 13-year-old king and then wait 20-some-odd years or more to, to install him? It's called the timing of God, isn't it? And to wait on God sometimes is more important than even hearing God. <laughs> so he won't strike. When David becomes king, he has done so because of the favor and of the timeline and the latter being the hardest to endure, that's for sure. We all know that. that. In other words, to wait on the timing of God. We know that God wants to do something, right? We know that God wants to bless us. We know that God wants to do something. But to wait on him was the thing that made David so incredibly uh, a man of character and, as I said, qualified to be king. 
So the first thing David does when he's made king is not hold a party, a party in his honor, as any king would. Hey, let, let's just have a party. Let's celebrate me. Let's have an inauguration party, right? Mm-mm. First thing David does is says, where's the ark? Well, it's been over at, uh, you know, I uh, forget whose house it was. We know that Obed eat him later. But it, it, it's not where it's supposed to be. And David says, well, I'm not going to be king without the presence of God. I'm not going to be king without the, the Ark of the Covenant being here smack dab in the middle of the city that God has given me, Jerusalem. And so he says, find it. And then when you bring it, he says, let me know. So when they bring it, he, he's, he holds a party. They worship. They celebrate. And David gets out in front of the Ark, and he dances, and he worships the Lord. And people are looking going, man, look at that. That's David. David has killed his tens of thousands. Saul has thousands, David his tens of thousands. This is the legend, David. And what is he doing? On his first day of being king, celebrating God like a silly youngster, dancing, worshiping. I don't know. I get stuck on that, guys. I I really get stuck on that. Because I think sometimes, I'm just speaking to the men as, as fathers today. You know, I look at David David's awesome. None of us could take him. I mean, I love Jamie. He's, he's a bad boy himself. I don't think you could have taken David. David was awesome. And yet he was also a man of incredible humility, simplicity when it came, and overt love for God. And what I mean by overt love for God, if we, if we struck up the worship service, David would rush to the front. David would be up here raising his hand. David would be doing a little Holy Spirit jig. That's David. And we look at that. And I think sometimes, guys, we have gotten a little constipated in our emotions. We've gotten a little, our culture has created this thing that guys should be just, you know, tall, dark, and handsome and, and, and completely uh, uh, restrained and under control the whole time. I'm bothered by that. Now, you know, I'm, I'm like you guys. I'm, I think we need to maintain our cool, stay cool, and all that. But you know what? One, one of the things that I loved when I walked into the first church I'd ever, ever really belonged to, and they struck up the music, and it was very, it wasn't hymns, it was kind of similar to kind of just choruses back then. Man, it would come a long way. But they began to sing, and I saw, and I was, and I saw some people and, and men that I really respected. They were over there. Some of them were just raising their hands and just singing out loud, and I'm going, whoa, man, they're kind of losing it. But then I began to kind of try it myself. And you know what? I saw God melting something inside me. I stepped out of what everybody thought of me. And I was just kind of like, well, I don't care. I don't care what they think of me. You know, I'm a young man. I'm comfortable with who I am as a man. I'm comfortable with who I am as a believer. But I'm going to worship my God. And that's what David is saying. David's walking down the, what they call, it was one of the song of ascents that they were singing. They were going up to, and David wrote a song about it. Let's go up to Zion. And so David is just celebrating, just wildly spinning, as it, what, what is what they said, just spinning around. I know you guys are looking at me. I'm not going to do no spinning, Pastor David. I get it. I understand. Look at First Chronicles 13, 1 through 4. David said, if it seems good to you, and if it is the will of the Lord our God, let us send word far and wide to the rest of our people throughout the territories of Israel, and also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their towns and pasture lands to come and join us. Let us bring the ark of our God back to us. For we did not inquire of it during the reign of Saul. Never did seek the Lord during that time. 
The whole assembly agreed to do this because it was right to all the people. So David brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem with something that never had done before. He sent for musicians and people rejoiced and celebrated before the Lord. The idea of coming into his presence of God is now introduced in a David-like way. David writes songs about Zion, and Zion go on, goes on to represent the, 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 not only the physical temple that is going to be built, but it's the presence of God. Zion is it's introduced as being a physical and symbolic place of God's dwelling. Zion represents the place of worship, closeness, and intimacy with God. David yearned for it. And even though he ad-libbed his version of how we come before the living God, God is clearly pleased and honors David because he understands his heart and not just required progression. And that's the thing. That's the thing right there. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. If your Christianity, if your heart for God becomes something that is just traditional and religious, then you're missing the point. It's not, God, it's not that God's going to reject you. I don't believe that at all. If you have faith in Jesus, and, and if you're not an overt worshiper, if you're, or if you don't go to the kind of church that, where that is celebrated or embraced, I'm not saying that in any way, shape, or form that God rejects that. No, 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 no. But I really believe you're missing out on something. And of course, I'm setting this up because God has a lot more for you. In Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 9, 11, and 12, it says, Sing praises to the Lord, enthroned in Zion, Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he avenges, uh, for he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cries of the afflicted. It's in that place. Rather than striking out against mankind, rather than taking our, our vengeance out into the world, God says, Come, bring it to me and let me be your vengeance. Let me be your reward. Let me be your rear guard. Let me be your attack. Let me be the one who comes and stands with you and, makes, and brings justice. We seek justice without God way, way too much. And so in the end, we really don't get it. So David has a real heart. He wants to build a temple because he's brought the ark in and they've had the tent of meeting set up and David's like, once again, God never asked for a temple. But David says, God, I really want, if there's anything I can do in my life, I want to build you a permanent place. Since we're not going anywhere, we're not traveling, we've got our nation, we've got our city, can I build you a temple? And God says, yes, you can. Once again, David pushing the envelope. I personally believe that God embraces the concept of a temple built out of stone and cedar wood and all the wonderful, glorious things that it became out of a concession to his people because God knew and knows they needed a physical place to see that God is with them. But the temple will only be a shadow of what is to come. So they wanted this glorious, and boy, did it ever become. When Solomon, because what we find is that David is, God says, David, you're just too much of a man of blood. It's not you. You've set this all up, and in your lifetime, this is awesome, but your son is going to be the one. So David gathers all the materials. He does everything. He gets, gets it all set up for Solomon. And when Solomon becomes king, he builds a temple for God. And man, it is quite the sight to see. I mean, it's world-renowned. Has more more gold and silver and precious metal and, uh, and jewels in it than probably could have been uh, physically accounted for. Today, what we learn in this whole idea of, of, of this temple worship, and, and I'm skipping over, as I said, I'm skipping over a lot. Once a temple is built, I'll say this, 
It be, they take David's idea of worship and they, and they bring it in. The, 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 the Levites add a whole new division of, of musicians. And to come, can you imagine being there? So when they came into the outer courts, it was a time of celebration. It was, again, a picture of what we do on Sunday mornings, even more clearly brought out for us. That as we gather together, we come with joy, we come with expectation. We struck up, we strike up the harp and the lyre. We, the Levites, not that they're Jewish in any way, shape, or form, but our Levites, quote unquote, are our worship team who create in, in, an opportunity. They come, they've been set aside, they have been, they've studied music, they, they have been uh, dedicated to this purpose of helping us come into the presence of God. They're David's worshipers, bringing us into the presence of God so that we might march into that holy place and then right into the heart, that holy of holies, where we can worship with him, worship him, worship with him, stand with him, experience him with him, and let God do some supernatural things. But we'll talk about that later. What we find is, and, and again, taking this to a conclusion here, when we think of all that has been done in the Old Testament, we can sit there and get caught up in that. We can get mesmerized. We can get overwhelmed with it. We might even want to try to rebuild that. That's the wrong way to go, my friends, because that never was ultimately God's heart. That's why I say the temple was a concession. That's why I say all of these things where God was saying, look, you're getting it, but we're not there yet. What God wanted was what I'm going to share with you right now. God was not looking for a, a physical building. God was looking for a people. The church, as we might all call it, we use the word church to describe this building. You probably drive past it, I don't know, every day or a couple times a week, and you look at it and say, well, there's the church, or where do you go to church? That's our church. This, look, this is a building. Biblically speaking, this is just what I call a sheep shed. It's just a place for God's people to come and gather and do what we do. This is not the church, which is why we don't necessarily, and, and I'm not knocking this, but I, I just, I'll just speak it plain, which is why we don't put in bell towers, which is why we don't come in here and, and create gilded and beautiful and, and type of things that draw our attention to physical uh, ideas of who God is. No, no, no. We just want a place where we can, where we got air conditioning running. Isn't that nice? where we can come and hear musicians who've dedicated their life to honoring God, where you got nice, comfortable seats. Those are nice, aren't they? When I got here, they weren't so nice. And we upgraded them, gave you a little more wide room there. Some of you needed it. But anyway, we got you some nice chairs. We, got, we painted the walls. We got Jamie who's going to knock a big old hole in, and all for the purpose of what? Helping us worship. Not anything to build some kind of an edifice that says that, that we would draw attention to, you know, a physical thing, which really is ultimately idolatry. And when you pursue an image, when you pursue an object, it's taking you away from the what? The person. That's why we keep it simple around here. I'd love to remove that, that pillar sitting right there that's blocking car from seeing me and whoever else is online with that. But unfortunately, it holds up the whole building, so we got to have it. I don't think we can do really anything else with that, unless you can figure something out, Jamie. But anyway, so, I mean, you know, I mean, we'd paint it gold. I don't know. Well, I don't, I, anyway, it, it does not equal a temple or a holy place where God dwells. When I think of church, when the Bible teaches on church. But the church is people, and I'll share these verses with you 
to close this morning. If you look in Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians. Let's read these verses. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. And he's talking about Gentiles and Jews and people from all the different nations that were represented and in the same way from us, different parts of the country, West Coast, East Coast, North, South, nations all over the world. And here we are now called together for his, in, in, to be his household, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets who helped plant churches, who helped bring wisdom and grace and set in pastors. That's how I got here. I was set in with a group of apostles and prophets. They laid hands on me and said, this is your guy. With Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, notice he's using building language, but he's talking about people. In him, the whole building, quote-unquote, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, wow, he's using temple language. I don't see any temple. Do you see a temple? No, 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 no. You'll see what he's talking about here in a minute. Rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. What does he mean by that? Well, he goes on. In 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And in response to that, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes on. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. See, we, we, when we ascribe all of the holiness to a building, it takes the pressure off us. When Paul is clearly saying, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not about buildings anymore. We are where the presence of God now dwells. We now experience the Shekinah glory inside us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. No longer held by a building. No longer expressed through you know, all of these, the, the outer court, the inner court, and the Holy of Holies. Therefore, do not be foolish but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Talk more about that later. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God through the Father, uh, God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we find here, folks, is that God had a heart to teach. That's what the whole Old Testament is all about, is God taking his children from a place of infancy to full adulthood and understanding what his presence was, understanding what worship was, bringing them. Now, we're going to learn next week that as a result of the people of God pulling away and in, in sinning and, and, and completely ignoring the presence of God, you're going to, you're going to read, you're going to be taught on how God wants to restore that. And there are many different parallels that come from that as well. But let's close this up today. Folks, we know what Jesus said. Jesus said, look, can I make this simple for you? My Father's looking for worshipers and those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. He said, that's always been the heart from the garden till now. God is wanting to get, get us right back into that garden of Eden, spiritually speaking. 
where we can walk with him in the cool of the day, where we can talk to him as wherever we drive, when we go for our walks or our runs, while we're sitting out there fishing or hunting or doing whatever we do, that we're always in the place where we understand that it, we can't go anywhere, as David said in Psalm 139. I can't flee from his presence. He's with me, always with me. And to take advantage of that, to worship him in spirit, to know that he's here, in truth, to let my heart be laid bare. Not trying, you don't think God already knows what you've done? Don't you know that God knows every thought? If you think 10,000 thoughts, what percentage of those were sinful that you didn't even remember you sinned? That's the grace of God. He loves you. He's for you. He's ready to forgive you, to wash you clean. But all we need to do is take advantage of understanding who we are. As Paul said, man, don't go get drunk and try to check out in this life. Don't take drugs and try to pull away from the reality of presence because in, in that world, you will never touch him. It's through a full conscience and understanding that he's ready to meet you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand up this morning. I understand that these, these are not typical sermons. But again, that's why I encourage you to keep coming. If you missed any, you can go to the website. Because what I'm doing is, again, is a somewhat of a comprehensive journey of taking us to understand why we worship. Why, as New Testament believers, there's so much more for us to have. It doesn't just stop in coming and singing worship songs the way we do. God wants to meet with us. And, and he's ready. He's waiting. Okay? He's the groom that's waiting for the bride to come down the aisle. He's there waiting at the altar, waiting for us to come and join him. We can do that very easily. And I'll help you get there. In the meantime, let's bow our heads and pray. Lord, we want to come to you today to communicate our value. We want to be like David. Lord, as we think of all the men and women in the Bible, there were so many that, Lord, you were drawn to, that you poured out an aspect of your character. David is so unique because, Lord, we also find that, God, he's very human. Lord, he had sinful tendencies. But what seems to be the very thing, as we read in the book of Acts, the thing that marked him most was that he was a man after your own heart. Lord, may we be those people, people, men and women after your heart, pursuing it, pursuing the presence, whether it be here, in our homes, when we travel, when we're away, God, from our routine, to seek the heart and the presence of God. Lord, I thank you that you're ready to meet us. Lord, I pray for these dear ones today, God, that you would remove every obstacle. Lord, our pride. Lord, to reject some of the maybe false teaching, Lord, that we've experienced. Lord, that hinders, Lord, the freedom that we can enjoy in this, this wonderful, wonderful relationship that has been bought on the cross for us restored, redeemed. So, Lord, we press in. We press in in these days. Teach us, Lord, to be men and women fully in pursuit of the heart of God in all that we do. Lord, bless us and keep it. So make your face shine, us, shine upon us today. In Jesus' name, Lord, amen.